basically like I had quit drinking, you know, I had quit eating meat and then I had an Android. I think the universe was telling me like pick two, not three. Yeah. I went back to an iPhone pretty quickly. Well, like, one, I lost all my friends. Definitely. <laughs> because of the yeah, iPhone. Message. Yeah, no, totally. That is a surefire way to lose But friends. also, like, dating was really interesting with all of that. Because, with a like, droid? Because everything was, like, Tinder-based, right? Or, yeah. like, online dating-based. Can you get Tinder on a droid? Yeah, you can. Oh, okay. But here's how it followed, right? They're like, hey, you're cute, you're cute. Do you uh-huh. want to meet up? Let's go to this bar. Hey, that's cool. Just a heads up. I don't drink, but I'm okay if you drink. Uh-huh. Just a heads up. And they're like, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. And they're like, do you want to meet at this restaurant? Okay, just a heads up. I'm vegan, so maybe this southern barbecue place isn't that good. But, yeah, I'm, you know, I don't care if you're vegan. Yeah. So that's already kind of like, you know, two things. That's two. And they're like, oh, it's fine. We'll figure it out. What's your number? And then, and then they, the get the green bu- they get the green bubble. <laughs> and they're like, this guy's a fucking serial killer. <laughs> guys, welcome to another episode of Al Anonymous. If you're enjoying Al Anonymous, the podcast, please consider subscribing to the Patreon at patreon.com slash alanonymous. If you don't feel like paying for my otherwise free pod, it would mean a whole lot if you could subscribe, rate, and review Al Anonymous on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if that's too much for you, perhaps you can tell all your friends how much you love the pod. Thanks, guys, and enjoy this episode. Hi, listeners. Welcome to Al Anonymous. This is Al. I have a guest in my living room. And he is going to introduce himself right now. Hi, um, my name is Eric Koo. Uh I'm based out here in New York. Uh, I'm an art director, creative director. I work with, you know, in the music and the fashion space. Mm-hmm. And he's like a graphic design like icon. Thank you. Um, I had no idea until I was telling my like graphic designer, or I was like, oh my gosh, Eric is popular. And then my graphic design friend was like, oh yeah, he's like, he didn't say an icon, but he's, uh, he's big oh, man. in that, in that industry. I mean, I, I wonder if it's like being a famous plumber sometimes <laughs> where it's like, it's one of those things where it's like a very specific group of people might know who you are and yeah. then outside it's like pretty anonymous. And maybe that in itself is like pretty much a blessing where it's like, none of it matters in, right. the, in a larger scheme. Um, I would love to meet a famous plumber, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I would too. That's really cool. Yeah. But it, it is one of those things where in some moments, like, it, you could get gassed up and feel like a lot of pressure on something. And oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to the, to gas you up too much. No, no, no. It's it's one of those things where it's like, it, it's kind of weird to think about. But then the moment I walk out the door, I'm just like a nobody. Right. And, um, until I uh, go to the New York Art Book Fair and creepy people Taking pictures and, and autographs. And a good thing I haven't got the autographs. I've gotten the picture thing a couple of times, which was something to get used to. That's cool. It's like <laughs> That's wild. it's like I'm not like an athlete or, or anything. You know, I, I'm just I'm just a guy that draws boxes on the computer. <laughs> right. Um, 
I'm still trying to figure out what exactly graphic design entails. Apparently, it's everything. It's it's everything and it's nothing at the same time. <laughs> like I think I think anybody could call themselves a graphic designer these days. Mm-hmm. And then if somebody asks like, "What do you do?" and you could say like, "You know, I, you know, I buy things online and then I, I resell them." And you're like, "Yeah, okay, I guess." Like, yeah, I guess that graphic counts. design. Yeah, everything. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a consultant. Yeah. You're like, you know, I, I paint houses. You're like, yeah, that's cool. That's graphic design. Graphic design for yeah. sure. Yeah. Everything and nothing all at once. Everything and nothing. We were talking about, because this is the only thing I can talk about recently, is my new uh, sleep schedule, which sucks ass. I wake up at 7 a.m. every day, and I don't accomplish anything during the morning hours. Uh, I... I'm just tired all day and thinking about how long I've been awake for. And we were talking about how there are all these like successful people who wake up at 6 a.m. and do all the things. And Eric, what time do you wake up? I, man, I, 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 it varies a lot. I try to do, you know, I try to do 10 to 11. Mm-hmm. Um, normally. All right, normal. I, I think, um, you know, there was a point for a while where I was waking up at 6 a.m. I, I did drink like the hustle Kool-Aid for a while. Mm-hmm. I just realized it wasn't me. But, you know, I, I think there was also like many years in my life where I was waking up at between 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Um, and that was kind of depressing, too. Even, yeah. Especially yeah. like during the winter. You no, wake for up sure. And it's like you feel dark. like a P.O.S. Yeah. And, you know, like the more and more these days I'm just learning about just like being compassionate to yourself and like what your needs are and, and knowing like what helps you the best. And, you know, so I, you know, I wake up at 10, 11, a lot of times I don't start working until three, you know, like I I used to feel like I would wake up and I was like behind already. And that's like not right. That's not like a good way to live your life, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I just realized like I'm the best working when it's like late afternoon till evenings. And, and I try to just plan my life around that. Um, you know, and I, I've been fortunate enough to have like the relative amount of freedom, just, you know, working for myself to, to be able to do that. Um, and, and yeah, it's just like everyone's body chemistry, everyone's like schedule is just super different. Like for every famous person, like you could find that, you know, wakes up early you could find another famous person that doesn't wake up early like i think we were mm-hmm. talking earlier like yeah like i think nishi woke up like at like late in the afternoon yeah um, which rules so you know <laughs> it's yeah classic it's, fred <laughs> classic we love him yeah. but <laughs> cool thank you for sharing all of that because i think it's important to know that you don't have to wake up at 6 a.m to be successful everyone so you're sober now yeah. And you mentioned waking up between two and four. Was that like pre or post sobriety? That was uh, that was pre sobriety. Yeah. That was that was extremely pre sobriety. Yeah, you know, that was that like, sounds about right. That was like peak like unsober. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think uh, it. There was a few years where, you know, I like it was like the worst of both worlds. Like I, you know, I would party all night, um, or at least be out in a bar all night you know, sometimes by myself, oh, mm-hmm. I just didn't want to go home for a long time. Yep. I didn't want to be alone in my own thoughts. <laughs> yep. And I would come back at 4 a.m. Um, and then I would wake up at 4 p.m. Mm-hmm. It, it was like, 
and then, you know, the rationalization I had for myself was like, you know what, I'm a night owl anyways, I'll work late at night. Mm -hmm. But then I wouldn't work at all because, you know, my friends were out. And they were out. Yeah. Yeah. My friends were out. It's like, I got to join them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my work life suffered. Um, Like, I think everything kind of suffered, but in my head, I thought, you know, this was like normal. This was like, you know, this was just how I was living my life. And so, you know, something, something like kind of, it definitely was like just something that was just like compounding and like New York city kind of enables that with like their bar hours and things like that. Oh, a certain yes. way. But, you know, I think fundamentally too, I, I think there was a period of my life, like throughout a lot of my twenties where I did not want to go to bed sober. Yeah. Uh, no, that, that was my yeah. main, main issue also drinking alone because I didn't want to be alone with my thoughts, not wanting to go home Yeah, it, and not being able to fall asleep. It was one of those things where, you know, I, I didn't really party in college. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I didn't really drink until I was 23. Like I, I was pretty much a late bloomer, but I think basically what happened was like, I had that like college party phase after I started working, mm-hmm. which is in a lot of ways, much more damaging because yeah, I think totally. when you're just when you're a teen, do yeah. get it all over with. You're a t- there's no consequences. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, no, for sure. I wish know. I was like worse as a teen. Like, <laughs> skipping class is very different than not showing up for work. Um, yeah, totally. You know, missing like a deadline for an essay is very different than missing a deadline for a client. Mm-hmm. Um, and so <laughs> there was, and I think unfortunately, like I, during that time, I, I was starting to get known for my work. So it was like a negative feedback loop where it was like, I was getting praise and accolades, but so that would help me rationalize why it's okay to do yeah. like what I was doing. There's all these rational yeah. rationalizations that you make up when you're still in it. Yeah, I, I grew up like I grew up, you know, I grew up in like a little bit farther of East LA. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Pasadena Monterey Park area. Oh yes. It was kind of like um, you know, I grew up in like a what most people would describe as a suburban Chinatown. Um and so it was pretty mixed economically. Like there were some towns next to mine where I grew up, Temple City, that were very affluent. And then other towns like, you know, El Monte, Alhambra, um, where I also lived, you know, in my early childhood that wasn't, you know, it was pretty, had a pretty big like poverty line too. I've been to Alhambra. Yeah, it was, you know, it was definitely a mixed bag. And I think when you combine race and economics into it, there was definitely a big difference where, you know, we were all Asian, but you had like either like kids of Chinese oligarchs or like Cambodian refugees, Mm -hmm. just kind of in the same kind of classroom. But either way, like, you know, my school was pretty competitive, but there was just, because it was a public school in LA, there was still like a big gang problem. And um, when I was like in middle school, like the thing I really wanted to be was to join a gang. Like I, I really wanted to join one of the like, Cantonese gangs like in my neighborhood I wasn't even Cantonese um but I I never had it in with me to like go full through like I think I'm just ultimately a teddy bear at heart so (laughs) a lot of the things like the drugs and the violence I I didn't really have the stomach for oh yeah that's part of it the drugs and the violence the violence it was funny because like you know I think like I think the school kind of saw me as like at risk so they sent me to like middle school it's young yeah they sent me to counseling and my counselor just happened to be a youth pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. And like my- <laughs> Like my, Christian, right? Yeah. My okay. family was Christian. My family was 
pretty hardcore Buddhist. Um, my grandmother is a pretty well-known member in the Buddhist community in California. Oh, cool. And, um, I'll you know, look her up. it was, it was crazy. Cause I, you know, we were raised on pretty interesting values. I think Buddhism is very different than like a Judeo Christian household. Mm. You know, it's a lot more progressive in certain cases. Yeah. I can imagine. But you know, that youth pastor, I think my home life wasn't very, very good at that time. My parents' marriage wasn't doing so well. Uh-huh. Um, and so I think I needed that kind of mentorship and that kind of home. I think long story short, I got right. roped into the church. Wow. Um, wow. And I he must like, have been so proud of himself. Yeah. I mean, I became like, I became like a Christian, like in high school. My parents are also Christian now too. So that was my fault. Wow. <laughs> Most of my high school friends are Christian because of me too. Um I like wait, that's crazy. Yeah, Eric. like most of my high school friends like were not Christian and they became like they became Christian. Wow. Um, You're so powerful. I, I, not all a of it was me, but I think a lot of it was me. Um That's a really that's cool. And then <laughs> It's interesting now because I'm not Christian anymore. I like left the church since then. But and your parents are still in it. They're deep. They're super deep in it now. Yikes. Um, oh my and god! My, a lot of my friends are super deep in it, and so it was one of those things where it's like when I go back home and I meet people from my past, like there's a wall. Um, Wait, but that it was a wall I put that up you, myself that you built. Yeah, yeah, it was a wall. So it's like I, I think when you're a Christian, especially when you're like an evangelical Christian, there's like there's just a certain way you look at the world that's just incompatible with how other people look at the world. Yeah. And so I think it, it was, it was interesting. Like, you know, I would, I basically like long story short, I went to art school. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of what, that's where it all changed. That's kind of where it all changed. And I kind of just like <laughs> opened up, but you know, um, I also, you know, my grandmother died unexpectedly. And I think like, they, she was somebody that wasn't Christian and and people had been in my church community had tried to evangelize to her. Mm-hmm. And I think like just recognizing the fact that in their mind, like she wasn't going to heaven but right. despite like everything she was and what a wonderful person she was. Like, oh my God. I think I, that didn't sit right with me. Yeah. But, so I, I pretty wanted- That's real? That, yeah. Wow. I, I 180 pretty quickly, uh-huh. but- you know, I think old habits die hard. I think old habits regarding like sexuality, drugs, drinking, things like that. Right like, and wrong. And- you know, it, it took a couple more years for me to grow out of. Um, and so right. I think I was also just like, I put my heart into like art school because it felt like my ticket out of my, my town. I, I grew up like wanting nothing but to leave um, for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I think there was like the gang component thing with some friends, were, which was like really harsh. Like it was not fun to be around with. Um, you know, there was a lot of violence growing up in high school. Like a lot of my classmates are dead. Right. You know, a lot of my friends growing up are are in the prison system too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the ones that made it out had to become Christian to like kind of stay out of it basically. <laughs> right. But um, oh my God. like, you know, I, I was also just like on the other hand, like really you know, my parents were immigrants, so they, they, there was this whole narrative of like them crossing the entire Pacific Ocean to have a better life for their kids. Right. And what that means is like in return, you kind of just do what you're told in terms of what oh job you, right. what career you pick. Right. And so uh-huh. I think I was being groomed to take over my dad's insurance business. 
And so I mostly went along with it in high school. That was my expectation. And, you know, learning about life insurance and stuff. And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to go to a UC school, um, take up business administration as a major or economics and and work for my dad afterwards. I think um, at the same time, I, you know, I kind of had this weird kind of double life as like somebody that loved like art and stuff. Uh, long story short, I got arrested for graffiti on Mother's Day. Um, oh my god! That was kind of like when my parents found out. Like <laughs> on Mother's, I had this whole kind of other sort of interest in me mm-hmm. um, art. And I, I think Crime. for me, it was like a wake up call. I couldn't just deny it too. Like I just realized I wasn't happy, and I, mm-hmm. I, I really like drank the American dream Kool Aid of like chasing your passion and mm-hmm. stuff. And you know, I I took on a lot of student loans. But basically for me to get into art school, like I was dealing with a shame, like if I don't do well, I'm going to look so stupid because I made such a stink. And like, I like had so many fights with my parents about their blessing. Was you getting arrested for graffiti, like the catalyst, like for you to talk about how this is the real me, I want to go to art school? In In a way, yeah. I think, um, because after I got arrested, my parents kind of treated it as an isolated event. But then my, but then my mother was driving during the day and I was like not having a good day and I was going around just tagging shit up and I was just like, fuck this. And my mom drove by and just saw me and it broke her heart. But then I just realized like, it's sad. I was like, shit, like I, you know, I, it's weird. Like I grew up just obsessed with just the, with fonts. You know, like long mm-hmm. story short. And like, this was like a bad way to deal with liking fonts. And then there were like good uh-huh. way to deal with liking fonts. And um, yeah, graffiti is all about those letters. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of just, you know, and I've been making websites since I was a teen. Like, you know, I was like, everybody wanted a cool live journal or a yeah, or course, MySpace. And like, that was where I made myself useful to my classmates and mm-hmm. stuff. So there was that side of me before, but I just leaned into it. And so... I also went to like a really strict school. So, you know, there wasn't summer breaks. There wasn't like really like a party environment. So I kind of just really um, stayed out of it. That sounds like a cool, good environment for you. Yeah. Like in lieu of the uh, church and gangs. But I I think with dealing with stuff, it basically delayed me discovering myself. Right. And like being introspective. In my head, it was just like in school, I was like graphic design. Following rules and yeah. And then I went straight to grad school after that. And so it was really just like. Delaying, um, putting off. Six years of just. Being by yourself. Not having that party phase and yeah. you know, not dealing with surfacing like trauma I might have experienced. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and so like drugs and stuff, drinking was just things that other people did. But then the summer after my first year in grad school, I moved to New York. <laughs> with nothing in planned in mind because I had just gotten out of a long distance relationship. And so I didn't apply to any internships and stuff. So I just was staying with a friend from college. Mm-hmm. And he definitely was like a party guy. Mm-hmm. And this was like my first summer break since I was six. Because, oh you know, I spent most summers in my childhood taking SAT prep and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And long story short, like I just discovered like whiskey, cigarettes yeah. and harder stuff like yeah. in that single summer. And um, it, 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 and then like I think being around personalities in New York, where it's very different than in LA, um, especially growing up in an Asian part of LA, it's sort of like you keep to yourself, you don't, you know, don't try to rock the boat, 
I was meeting people in New York here where they like moved here and they had like a purpose to be there. Yeah. And they were like kind of just fucking shit up. And so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I went back to grad school that year, which just like a whole felt like a whole different person. Like I opened up and it was like, I'm going to speak my mind. You know, I'm going to be disruptive. Like I took my Twitter off private. I just started talking mad shit on Twitter uh-huh. um, and getting friends like that. This is I where was, it begins. Yeah. Like I had a bottle of whiskey at my grad school <laughs> studio desk. And, uh-huh. And I realized New York it, and Twitter. Yeah, I realized it was helpful because it felt like I had repressed. Like you know, I went through most of life like not speaking my mind, mm-hmm. not knowing what I wanted. And yeah, no, that's huge. That's a huge like yeah, breakthrough in a way. It gave me a bit of confidence, but and it was helpful because I kind of knew my limit mm-hmm. still until I didn't know my yes, limit. Yes, and then that's a- you suddenly don't know your limit. You realize like what your limit is is a moving target that mm-hmm. depends on a lot of things going a certain way in your life. I went through like a really bad breakup towards the end of my second year in grad school, right before I was graduating. Mm -hmm. And something was weird. You know, I had smoked, like I smoked a couple cigarettes. I I drank and stuff here and there. You know, I I learned to like deal with a lot. But suddenly during the day, because she was also a classmate of mine, Hmm. like, and she was always around, I just got this nervous pit in my stomach and I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. It was like before you go on stage. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I only remember feeling like that, like right before a violin recital or something. Uh huh. And I just had that all the time. And later on now, I know this is anxiety, anxiety yeah. but I didn't know what this was. Yeah. And the only thing that made it go away was yep. cigarettes and alcohol. Mm-hmm. And so I just felt whenever I do that, I would just go outside for a smoke break. It was during the day. And if it was at night, I would go outside and drink. Um, yeah. And this was like, this was like the first time where, you know, like I really, really like got dumped like mm-hmm. the first time in my life. And, and because I was Christian, like I, you know, I, I lost my virginity at like 20. I was like very late to everything, you know? Right. So I didn't know how to deal with all that stuff. And so yeah. I just realized that like, if I went to bed without drinking, I would be very, very sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would have that nervous pit in my stomach. So I know all I just, about that pit. Yeah. I just drank every night to go to sleep. And then I did that for a few months and I didn't think about consequences. I didn't think about what it would do to my body. I think when you're young, you think you're kind of invincible, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and at the same time, I was, I felt like these alcohol and the cigarettes were giving me this courage to do a lot of things in my life. Yeah. And so I thought this was ultimately good for me. Right, right. And, and it made you feel better. Yeah. It made the pit go away. It made the pit go away. It also made, made me more thinking. talking. Yeah, the thinking you know, goes away so you can just say whatever. Yeah, I think the biggest problem I have in my life in general is like asking for help right. um, or getting to know people. Just like going up to somebody and being like, hey, I'd like to meet you. Right. And... Drinking was like the closest thing I got to like doing that. No, and I absolutely. realized how much it opened up in my life because I think there's a lot of things with like my racial identity, cultural identity, also things, things growing up that we said like, you know, I think New York is a lot about who you know and the people you know in New York definitely end up changing your life. But yes, I grew up true. with the understanding like you should only, like networking is good if you could offer something to somebody. Like that was something like my parents told me, that was something. So you know, I, it, no one's ever told me that. That's pretty good. It internalized something though, but it made me like have this mindset like I shouldn't reach out to people 
they should reach out to me. I should make uh-huh. myself useful, which isn't like necessarily the best way to look at things right. in general in life. Wow, I've never heard that little networking piece of advice. I mean, some part of it is kind of true, mm-hmm. but some part of it, like I think if you internalize it when you're young, it's like not that helpful. Probably not. And so- it's like not a good way to go about yeah. personal relationships with human beings. And, and suddenly I was just in New York and I was just meeting people like- People not necessarily that I knew about and like dreamed of meeting, though that did happen, but it's just Mm -hmm. people that felt like I felt like kinship to like, wow, these are like creative people. They Mm want to do things and they're not ashamed of it. And yeah, they know how to make things happen. And it would just be like at a single night in a bar, you can meet four people that Mm -hmm. years later end up. You know, you're like, wow, I'm so thankful I met this person. Yeah, for sure. So there was just this New York really is beautiful about that. Yeah. But there was this feedback loop that was so tethered to drinking um, and other drugs where it's like, this is how you meet people. This is how you become successful. And I totally ate that up when I was younger. Uh Uh-huh. Because it was all all you knew of New York. Yeah. Or or like real life, you know? Yeah, yeah. Who knows if New York is real life. And I was letting my health deteriorate at the same time, too. I, you know, I like I gained 80 pounds in two years. Uh Um, And like. You look great, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. When you when I saw you when you came into my door I was like oh my god you look amazing thank you so yeah really good I, I mean that came through sobriety definitely too um, I mean I struggled with weight and stuff my whole life but like I was on like that paleo thing in in grad school so I was looking pretty good mm-hmm. and then like yeah like I just kind of just like regressed a lot when I started drinking again um, not saying that like weight gain is bad it's just that it's symptomatic of other things yes. in my s- specific situation yes. Um, and, you know, like just even basic things like my hygiene over the years. And I think also, I think it altered my brain chemistry too. I was becoming like not a nice person um, on Twitter and stuff. Right. And. Because you weren't like editing your thoughts. So you were just like letting it like rip into the Twitter sphere and just you don't care who you offend. And yeah, I or, think. Or like this is what. You this know, is how I like get ahead or I don't know. Yeah. And it's also just like, you know, the last decade, I think there was really this big awakening about identity, whether it was like race, gender and who you were. And like, yeah, yes, I think it was something that a lot of people needed to hear, mm-hmm. like to know that there's privileges that some people enjoy that you don't. Yeah. Um, but I think ultimately, like when you combine it with Twitter's algorithm and its visibility factor, it just ends up getting so weaponized. Like I like I learned about things like white privilege and things in grad school. And mind you, I, I came from a racial bubble. Yeah. Like, you know, most of my friends growing up were Asian. Uh-huh. And so moving to the East Coast, that was, you know, I was navigating certain things that like people who have grown here have dealt with their entire life. And so I felt like Siddhartha, like leaving the walled gardens and uh-huh. discovering human suffering for the first time in many ways. Damn. And it was like it was helpful to use Twitter to try to navigate that, but it's definitely not a substitute for therapy. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I definitely was using it as a substitute for therapy. But I think with Twitter, it's easy to see everything as conflict driven. Whereas like if somebody doesn't like something, they're opposed to like you as a person, you know? Right. It's and, hard to separate person from, the you know, opinion. I think with like the hot takes culture and everything, uh-huh. I totally ate that up because that's kind of how I was getting known for things. Like, yeah. I think I, I think I'm a good designer at the end of the day, but I think a lot of people just knew me takes. 
more from my hot takes on social media than anything. Uh-huh. Um, and there was a lot of like, oh yeah, Eric's saying things I wish I'd said. But then I think to somebody that grew up, somebody like me, like when you grow up feeling worthless, um, any sort of validation is like a drug too. Uh-huh. I know that very well. And, yeah. you know, it's, uh, there's that theory that like everybody that wants to be famous was at one point made to feel worthless. You know, that's really where that stems from. And, and not saying I wanted wow. to be famous. I didn't want to be famous. I wanted to be liked. I wanted to be respected. I wanted to be mm-hmm. admired. There was definitely like that gap in my, my Acknowledged, heart. yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 that is very real. And so, you know, like I think dealing, like learning about things like, you know, my identity and like privilege and things like that and processing that while also like, now that I graduated from school, I had time to think about what happened in my childhood. Mm-hmm. A lot of things that I think back were maybe abusive or neglectful growing up, like needs that I had that weren't met. A lot of resentment. A lot of that stuff came back, and God, you know that, that contributes mean? to that mental that pit in my stomach. Yeah, that I no, to for sure. From, you know, um, uh huh. And basically, between 2013 to 2019. A lot of amazing things were happening in my career, but at the same time, like I was damaging my brain chemistry and damaging my body in like very unspeakable ways. Right. And it was definitely going to catch up to me at some point. Did it? Yeah, I mean, never, never really. Like, it Not got like to asking to like explain it, your rock bottom or whatever. I mean, it got to the point like, where like my reputation and like the actual and my actions disconnected a lot more and more like day to day affected my work. Like I had left my first job in New York. Uh, you know, I was working at okay focus and that's how we met. That's um, how we met. Yeah. And, um, you know, I left my job to start my own thing. And so there wasn't really like a mentorship situation I was in. I was kind of just running off of, you know, everything that I had mentioned up to this point. Mm-hmm. Like I was just right. going off by reputation I was going off. And I was also just like 24 years old at the time, yeah. you know, I not knowing I was like growing up in public um, right. in a very specific, not like publicly, publicly, but in a very specific scene. I but was like kind of. Yeah. Up. Yeah, no, for sure. And um, and so I've never thought about it that way. You know, I would get these like cool opportunities with clients, you know, people I've dreamed of working with. And then they would just be like, can you meet at 11? And I'd be like, no. Like 11 a.m.? Yeah. Yeah, like no. that's not going to happen. I could only meet after four. <laughs> yeah. You know, realistically, I wanted a party. Mm-hmm. And then I would start missing deadlines. Yeah. Like I'd start just, like, I just had such bad impulse control where, okay, I have to work on this tonight because I said it'd be done. Yeah. And then I just wouldn't. Yeah. I would go out drinking and then, mm-hmm. you know, I never drank during the day. I never did things like that. And that's kind of... I kind of wish I did because I, it would have made me realize I had a problem sooner, sooner. than later. Yeah, no, same. I'm with I, you on that. I think too. with that, there was always the illusion that I was in control. Yeah, because you're I'm at least not drinking during yeah. the day. Yeah. And I think when you look at movies, when you're like alcohol, like you see an alcoholic, it's like, oh, I'm not Doug Stamper, House of Cards. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't got like bottles in my trunk of my car. Yeah. You know? And so as long as I'm not that, I'm okay, right? And yeah. then- I think alcoholism, like the definition of that, you know, it should be a lot more wider. I think if you start basing your day-to-day decisions around drinking, I think it's something to consider. I think that's a good way. To and I realize I 
realized looking back, I based nearly every single decision on drinking that day. Oh, I should eat now because I'm going to drink later. Yeah. Oh, we should meet this person. So, you know, I'm going to bring this thing over or we should go to this bar to meet up. Yeah, before the thing. Yeah. I realized alcohol kind of just my entire social thing, you know, was regarding alcohol. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, oh, I have to do this thing early tomorrow so I can't drink tonight. Like. It was, yeah. you know, I think looking back, it was, it was, it's crazy how much decisions there are, you know. Um, I ha- actually haven't thought of that either before. Yeah. That's, it's sad. Yeah. It, my know, whole life revolved around drinking. Yeah. My whole life revolved around drinking. I was also chain smoking. And, you know, in New York, like there's, there's a couple other things too, you know, but beyond weed that you kind of get yeah. involved with and stuff. And, and so it was, it, it got to the point where, like, it was affecting my work. It was also affecting my friendships, too. Like, I was never a belligerent drunk. Like, I, I'm pretty normal when I'm drunk. Which is, like, a scary thing. Which is a scary thing, yeah. yeah. Like, I just realized I stopped acting drunk, really. Yeah. I think my worst thing was that I would get sleepy. But then I would just have these thoughts in my head. Like, I drank to get away from dark thoughts. Yeah. And then at some point, the dark thoughts, like, came to me in my drinking. Oh, no. And, like... What do you do then? The 2 a.m., like, angry text messages, I think, to my mm. parents. Yeah. Um, like... Yeah, that's when that happens. Yeah, a lot of times I wouldn't... I think with my parents, there was that. I wouldn't really act on it with other people. I think I... I think my problem now is that I'm like pretty socially sensitive. Like I, I try to read the room and stuff here and there, which is which is good for the good most practice, case. But yeah. it stopped me from learning a lot of lessons early on. And so I I would I would have like just really intrusive thoughts about my friends. And it became I became really paranoid about my friends. Yeah. I became wow. really paranoid about everything. And I wouldn't act on it when I was drunk, but the next day I would like, you know, consider it a fact. Like these uh-huh. hypotheses I've had in my head. Right. You know. Oh my God. Um, and so it was really like that. But a lot of times it was really self-medicating. I think for like six years, like on Twitter, I was just living through like I was tweeting out loud essentially, like just being upset I was born mm-hmm. the way I am. Um, I was born into my ethnicity. I was born into you know, I I like being Asian. That sounds so weird to say. I, I like I liked it, but I I didn't like being born in a in a world that like meant that I couldn't enjoy certain things other people with different backgrounds could or have access to things. Um, I also was pretty resentful of my childhood. I think a lot of the violence, you know, in school, um, a lot of the violence in my home, I experienced, you know, my parents' marriage. I didn't really have an answer for that. And so that's kind of what kept me going. Like, I just felt like for a time it became my identity and I needed this. Mm-hmm. And then it got to the point where in New York it was getting tough because drinking is expensive. Um, it's, what's also expensive is like not finishing a job you were paid to do. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> things were starting to catch up on me. Like there was a three month period where I just wasn't paying rent and, you know, I, I had barely little money left in my bank account. Wow. I had like a very similar end of my, I wasn't paying rent for a while. Yeah. And then (laughs) suddenly like this job offer came knocking on my doorstep, but you know, I was going to work for a giant fashion company in Montreal. And I felt like this was the ticket out. 
it was like gonna save my life and in some ways like it was well paying so it could support me and stuff it's a full-time job so it gave me a chance to maybe try to get my act together Mm -hmm. but as tony soprano says there's no geographic solution to an emotional problem he Um, said that yeah i've always wondered where that came from yeah there's uh he said it to his sister who moved around a lot, mm-hmm. but I didn't know it at the time. And I thought moving to Montreal, I thought I was getting away from New York. Yeah, I left New York with my tail between my legs, like feeling like a failure, even though objectively that wasn't the case. Yeah, It was also just even like, I wasn't aware of my own privileges oh, as a man. That's such a sad way to leave New York. You can never do that. Yeah, No one should ever have to do that. No one should yeah. do that. I, go on, sorry. You know, I wasn't aware of my privileges as a man too. I think there's just a way, I think guys do get away with like passing their L's off as W's. Like, and it was just like outwardly, I was like, yeah, I'm getting a job. I got this like cool thing. Like, this is what I deserve. Everyone's super happy for me. You know, I get to Montreal (laughs) and um, basically a few months before I moved to Montreal, I got my first panic attack. Mm. I think like all the substances that caught up to me, it was something I never went through when I was like, when I was younger. Mm-hmm. That um, must have been terrifying. Yeah. I think what basically happened was, you know, my, I had an uncle that died a, a month before I was born and he was 30 years old and he died wow. unexpectedly um, from complications and health stuff. Wow. I think I just suddenly got into the head that like my parents, like out of concern for me, had kind of incepted that I was going to follow in that person's path. And so I went, I went to Williamsburg cinema one day cause I was bored um, Williamsburg what? Cinema. Oh, cinema. And yeah. I was watching Deadpool. <laughs> it's really bad. I was like watching Deadpool by myself. Yeah. <laughs> I basically had too much coffee. Um, but in my head, I thought I was having a heart attack. Oh my God. Because of like oh, my th- uncle. This is when you're, okay. My uncle was fresh on my mind and stuff. So yeah. I ended up going to ER. Um, and they were just like, dude, you're not having a heart, heart attack. Like the, the nurse was funny. They're like, can you lose 40 pounds? Sure. But you're not having a heart attack. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, like that's exactly what he said to me. And uh, fun, these doctors, funny. And so I, <laughs> I, I quit cigarettes like then and there because I got spooked. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. I was still drinking and stuff. Yeah. And, not uh, enough to, to quit drinking. Yeah. <laughs> so this was a few months before Montreal. So I get to Montreal and I was like, yeah, okay. I guess I quit cigarettes. That kind of worked. I don't have panic attacks anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then, you know, I had to quit cigarettes a second time because, you know, all it took was a vacation to Europe to start smoking again. They love, they love cigarettes over there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the panic attacks start coming back. And so, because of the cigarettes? Um, or just like, I'm not in sure these days because, like, you know, I quit cigarettes again the second time and I still had panic attacks. Right. And it started coming off at work where, you know, the, I was working in a big corporation and I think I watched too much like the succession wasn't a show back then, but I watched too many movies where <laughs> stuff like that happened. So I was just like super paranoid. And I Wait, think what happens I've never seen succession. It's just basically like people betray each other in oh, a corporate okay. environment. But I think also because of my previous work experiences with former bosses and former partners, I was also just like, Oh, people could fuck people over and you're not realizing about it. And Right. I think I'm naturally pretty trusting of people. Yeah. And I think just over time, I just became super paranoid. So I would just have a lot of anxiety and stuff around that. That makes sense. Yeah. And then coupled with like the guilt that I knew I wasn't treating my body right, mm-hmm. that I knew that I just became super hypochondriac. 
So every little, like I, I get a headache and I'm like, well, that's it. Like everything's in slow motion. I was like, this is how this brain tumor starts. Oh my God. You know, <laughs> All right. like it was just, I felt sorry for me being in my own head at the time. Like, and I would feel sorry if anybody got a glance into what was going on in my head at the time. But, you know, a lot of those things didn't really skirt that behavior. And yes, Montreal, yeah. Montreal and, and moving to Portland afterwards helped me, you know, drink a little less. Mm. But whenever I would move back to go back to New York for a job, um, mm-hmm. for work and stuff, mm-hmm. it would start all over again. And right. so I was kind of afraid. I was like, oh, I should stay away from New York. Uh-huh. I could see that. Yeah. And so I finally stopped in 2019 for a couple of reasons. Um, 2019 is when you stopped? Yeah. That's when I stopped too. I won. Oh, no, 2018. Sorry. Yeah. One, you know, and apologies for not, for being vague about it, but I basically found a long lost family member of 23andMe. <laughs> and we basically met up and this person. This was in 2019? Yeah. This long lost. This is, wait, sorry. Pre yeah. or post. This is, this is drinking. You find out. About six months before I became sober. Okay. All right. Sorry. Just we met up a few months later. Um, because this person didn't live in Portland where I was living at the time. Mm-hmm. And this person basically filled in a lot of gaps in my childhood that I didn't understand. Um, you know. Some, the, you found this person on 23andMe. Yeah. The DNA testing yeah. site. It's kind of wild. What, what made you do 23andMe? Um, you know, my parents grew up in Taiwan. Um, mm-hmm. And their grandparents grew up in mainland China. And basically there was a civil war in China where a bunch of people fled to Taiwan, mm-hmm. but they probably left a lot of their siblings and stuff behind. Okay. I knew my grandfather left three brothers and sisters behind. So you were looking for her cousins. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I found, I found a relative living in the United States. that was like similar age to me that actually knew my parents. Um, Wild. and like, you know, had a lot more context. And you had no idea yeah. before this 23 and me. I had no idea assessment. this person existed. Uh huh. And so, you know, we're friends now, but this person basically helped explain a lot of things that my parents didn't explain to me as a kid that I was messed up about. You know, I mentioned earlier that my parents' marriage wasn't going too great. Uh-huh. And I carried a lot of resentment. You know, I, I didn't feel completely loved and I had a big sense of abandonment because there was always the threat of divorce. But I knew my parents were staying together for me and my brother. And so there's just this kind of like cycle of like unhappiness with everybody involved in that equation. Yeah. But uh, and this meaningless person just kind of gave you more context, yeah. Yeah. Like it made me realize that the things that in my head that I treated as evil uh-huh. were much more banal and boring. You know, it made the problem more boring. Like people aren't evil, they're human uh-huh. and they make mistakes. And there's, you know, it's sad that like somebody's actions could affect so many people, but it made me realize, okay, why my parents acted a certain way. And of course they couldn't tell me everything. You know, there was definitely like family secrets and things like that. And um, in a weird way, all of that hurt, that feeling like a victim that I carried with me and made my identity. It didn't feel right to hang on to that anymore because I realized that like things are just more random than they should. In my head, I, I thought my life was like a novel where there are good characters and bad characters. And these mm-hmm. bad characters have clear motivations, which is to be a bad person. And that's really how I navigated the world. Um, you know, it's really how I navigated like my relationships with my peers and my friends that if there was ever anything going wrong, it was quote unquote toxic 
or something. I think Twitter taught me a bunch of words that ended up being barely unhelpful <laughs> in my head, like toxic, gaslighting. Yeah. A lot of those words, you know, they come from really good places. But yeah, I think when you start to bring some of that language into everyday interactions, mm-hmm. like calling being a friend emotional labor, like at some point is kind of kind of wild, yes. you know, and I, makes I agree. it turns a lot of personal relationships into business transactions. Yeah, and, and so, that's a slippery slope. Yeah, it was dangerous. damaging on my psyche and stuff. Yeah. But I think after realizing that th- things are a lot more banal and boring than they are and that there isn't really this Machiavellian yeah, good guys and bad guys thing in me, and it made me realize that like I could do dumb things as well and I have done dumb things that have damaged other people too. Mm-hmm. It made me realize like I didn't need to hold on to that part anymore. So that was... You know, I didn't really change my behavior. I still kind of drank and stuff, but I think were not if I didn't meet this family member, I wouldn't have gone through that process. Um, you had to confront the truth, yeah, and come to terms with the t- truth. Yeah. And then once you did, it was like, oh, you could let it go. Yeah, this was the best yeah. thing that happened to me in my adult life. That sounds nice. And. <laughs> But like insane. Yeah. But I was still going out. I was still drinking and stuff. It's uh-huh. just, it just came from a different place. And I think also like Portland in many ways is like hater rehab. Um, you know, <laughs> is it? Yeah. Like that sounds horrible. Like I'm there's just, just so many fucking weirdos in that city. Mm-hmm. But then you realize like, I think like the East coast mentality I came here. It's just like, whoa, there's so many fucking weirdos. In right. The city. Wait, um, port- so Portland, like, you have to become nicer or something? I think you just realize that, like, they just live in a city that just accepts them for who they are. Oh. As corny as they want to be. Like, <laughs> Right. I guess that makes sense. Like, being corny is, like, a gift and a privilege sometimes. It really is. When I'm world. in my best mood, I am the corniest. Yeah. But, yeah. And I realize and privilege. We, you know, we pathologize, like, so many, so many sincere feelings. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, these corny people, I found a community of corny people too. And it, it just kind of really melted away a lot of cynicism. Yeah, no, for I sure. Had, you know, and like, you know, if That's I see a, a guy thing. in a fedora hat, I'm checked back in a hater rehab. I mean, <laughs> like, you know, like it's like I'm, I'm back in it. But yeah. um, it was really beautiful and being around all that nature and stuff um, was pretty good. But I was just like, yeah, there's no bar culture here. There's no drinking. And I, I still wanted to just yeah. keep going out. No, totally. Um, Being in a place where there's no bar culture. Yeah. And like there's terrible. little things that got better. I got a cat, you know. I adopted a cat while I was there oh, too. So that really is the best thing to do yeah. in anyone's life. Get a cat. Yeah. Like, I mean, he saved me more than I saved him. Aww. So, but <laughs> I went to Taipei like a month after I met this family member. Mm-hmm. And... Taipei feels like a Mexico City or Berlin in Asia right now. Really? Yeah. It's 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 more and more international too. A lot of artists and stuff are moving there. It's like cheap rent. Cool. But also it's just like it feels like 1995 in some ways. And that's like drinking culture where it's like smokings indoors. Mm, um, cool. You know, like bars are 24 hours. Yeah. Like drinking outside is fine. Yeah, that sounds know. awesome. So I kind of had a week <laughs> where I partied really hard. Yeah. I, then, yeah, if I were around that, it would be very difficult to not yeah. participate in the culture. And towards the end of that trip, I started feeling weird. Like I felt like I suspected like my blood pressure was really high, even though 
there's usually no symptoms for high blood pressure, but I think because of my uncle and stuff and like the right. hypochondria and I developed. The, yes, and the paranoia. All these little weird feelings in my body started going off. And so when I came back, it was starting there too. And so out of like an abundance of caution and trying to settle some anxiety stuff, I ordered a blood pressure monitor from Amazon. Mm-hmm. And so two days later it came. And so I was like, I'm just going to take my blood pressure now. It's going to show that it's normal. And I'm just going to realize it's crazy. Yeah. The machine literally said, get help. Oh my God. <laughs> um, it was a red light instead of a green or orange light, like on the box. No. My blood pressure was like 190 over a hundred something. <laughs> um, it's basically a hypertensive crisis. Jesus. And it wasn't like I was going through a stressful moment too. I was, that just, was just like, that was just normal. me. Wow. Jesus Christ. And it was one of those things where it's like, I kind of expected this would catch up to me because of the way I live. Like uh-huh. I was eating like processed food, like, and yeah, living in Montreal, being around all that French cooking and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I just became more decadent and mighty ate. I also had like disposable income. So I ate out and mm-hmm. I drank a lot too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew this was coming up because I specifically chose to rent an apartment walking distance to a hospital because like, I got him in the head that I was like gonna die alone. Oh my god! You know, like I had gotten so paranoid. Yeah, yeah, I had gotten so paranoid at that point. Oh my god! So I was like, well, this is what this is for. So I that is so dark. So I I took this this blood pressure machine and I just walked to the hospital like down the street from me. (laughs) Yeah, sorry, I don't mean to laugh at this. Um, It's comical. It was funny because like I texted my friends. And there are some friends that are like, hey, stay calm. Just walk mm-hmm. to the hospital. I had another friend that said, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, that would be out. me freaking out. And so, you know, I was trying <laughs> to stay calm despite my friend going like, holy shit. And stuff. <laughs> yeah. So I walk into the hospital and I just, without saying a word, I just show the front desk person my machine. Mm-hmm. And I knew it was bad when they just made me skip the line. Whoa. Like they just saw me immediately. Wait, this is wild yeah oh my god yeah and like okay so jesus christ you, like you could have died is what is what the thing gathering. about blood pressure is that like you don't die from like a high number like that but you die from having that high number unchecked for 10 years basically oh you know it god. leads to a stroke it leads to a heart attack it yeah leads to yeah kidney damage Shit. um and, you know, like the nurses were really compassionate. They were just like, you know, it's okay. Like you don't have a problem. You just take medication and it's fine. But um, I was telling my friends, I was like, this is either the start of something really bad or this is the start of something good and it's up to me. Mm. I think it was just like a month after I met that family member that helped tie up some loose ends in my life. That yeah. kind of put that sense. And I realized like the last six years of my life had caught up to me really at that point where you know, you could damage my reputation. You could damage my my fun, like my resources, like you know, my my money and and things like that. But yeah, this was like I am damaging my entire personhood. Uh-huh. And so I like just I just basically quit drinking that night. Um, and wow. you know, looking back, there's so many things that could have gone wrong. Like my parents noticed I had the shakes and my really? graduation in grad school, and they pointed that out. And I was wow. like, no, no, I was just hungry. I haven't eaten all day. There's so many things like looking back that yeah. kind of pointed to it. But, um, damn, you know, my parents also knew I had a drinking problem too, but they also got to the point where they had known me well enough to know that sometimes telling me that would make me lash out yes. and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I stopped drinking then and there. 
And then I was also just like, I know like not drinking itself isn't going to stop it because I think blood pressure is like a very, you know, it's a lot of different factors. Mm -hmm. So then like, um, I got this book called How Not to Die. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's not, it's, it's, the title is, it's funny. It's, it's not how to not die, but it's how not to die. Like how to die the wrong way. And it it realized like, oh yeah. Long story short is a book about veganism. Okay. And like, that's the last thing on my mind, but it led me to this documentary called Forks Over Knives. Mm -hmm. And it showed a lot of people that were in bad health. Yeah. Like on the verge of their deathbed, like turning their lives around because of just changing what they ate. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like just learning about that. I just started crying because I think I'd struggled with my weight all my life. I've struggled, you know, my mother works in fashion too and bless her heart. But like, you know, she was definitely obsessed with appearances more than the average person. Uh And it it really broke me. I I grew up feeling really ugly. Um, And I didn't look directly in the mirror until like a few years ago. Like when I would like be in front of a mirror, I would kind of like look at my nose and stuff or like, look, I wouldn't look myself in the eye. I didn't like what I saw. Yeah, I know. Um, And then like working in the fashion industry like I did. Yeah, it's an ugly industry. Yeah, and I went from the fashion industry to working at Nike. So I worked for an athletic company. Yeah. Um, And again, you know, like it was hard for me not to adopt the narrative that people were out to get me or that I had a chip on my shoulder from that. And so it's one of those things where, these things kind of feed into each other. But there's so much material that shows like, this is what could happen to you if you take on a life of drugs, if you take on a life of drinking or not eating healthy and they show you like the bad consequences. Mm-hmm. That stuff never worked for me. And this was like the first thing where they showed like, oh, this is how people who are maybe kind of in a similar situation as you, like how, how they got out of it. And I got really emotional. And then, you know, I, I also became like vegan and stuff too. Wow. So like major lifestyle changes all at once. Yeah. And I've been, I've been sober for two years and I've been vegan for two years and, you know, not every day is perfect, but my life is a lot better. Yeah. You know, for so many reasons. Cause it isn't just about like what you're not drinking or not eating. It's about like what you're actively like doing. Like instead of like drinking my way through depressing thoughts, I just had to deal with them. Mm Mm-hmm. But by dealing with them, I got over them a lot quicker. Yeah, a lot like, yeah, how you assessed your childhood yeah. trauma. You had to, you know, it was just. Do that. Like. And it's hard. It's yeah. so much work to, like, get through your problems and not drink through them. Yeah, it, it, it took a health scare to make me do it. But I think it also was, like, addressing some deep issues was kind of what started, made me okay to, yeah. to take the ultimate leap. And at first it was nuts. I didn't know what to do. It's like intense. My whole social life was around drinking. Mm-hmm. My whole friend group, like I had close friends, but I had a lot more drinking buddies mm-hmm. that I felt closer to. Yeah, no, they knew more yep. of my deep dark secrets than my close uh-huh. friends did. You know, yeah, um, for sure. Like I had quit smoking a little bit beforehand, so that was okay. But like I also like quit caffeine for, at that time too, and so yeah. that first week I was just. <laughs> Having the worst withdrawal symptoms of yeah. like not drinking, not having coffee and, that, and stuff. That sounds very uncomfortable. And also being on a huge calorie deficit and eating vegetables. Like, right, vegetables. It was like a week where I just was weird. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that's a funny thing too. Like I, I also got an Android phone because I was like, what? why the fuck not? Like, oh my god, just like fuck it. I was like, fuck I'm it. And everybody a Troy just too. everybody just literally thought I oh like god. I got like Portland pilled or something. That's so funny. Like I they thought I was just doing this to be a contrarian. Right. You know, like they thought I was just trying to be like 2004 indie music Bushwick guy. But the droid thing really You know, was. that just disapproved of everyone's decisions. Like they thought I was like <laughs> Like Anthony Fantano style kind of like, <laughs> like yeah. guy, you know? Yes. Um, I mean, from the outside, that's a, what it looks like. It was funny, too, because like <laughs> I was single at the time. Mm-hmm. And then basically like I had quit drinking, you know, I had quit eating meat. And then I had an Android. I think the universe was telling me like pick two, not three. Yeah. I went back to an iPhone pretty quickly. Well, like, one, I lost all my friends. Definitely. <laughs> because of the yeah, iPhone. Message. Yeah, no, totally. That is a surefire way to lose but friends. But also, like, dating was really interesting with all of that. Because, with a like, droid? Because everything was, like, Tinder-based, right? Or, yeah. like, online dating-based. Can you get Tinder on a droid? Yeah, you can. Oh, okay. But here's how it followed, right? They're like, hey, you're cute, you're cute. Do you uh-huh. want to meet up? Let's go to this bar. Hey, that's cool. Just a heads up. I don't drink, but I'm okay if you drink. Uh-huh. Just a heads up. And they're like, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. And they're like, do you want to meet at this restaurant? Okay, just a heads up. I'm vegan, so maybe the Southern Barbecue place isn't that good. But, yeah, I'm, you know, I don't care if you're vegan. Yeah. So that's already kind of like, you know, two things. That's two. And they're like, oh, it's fine. We'll figure it out. What's your number? And then, and then they, the get the green bu- they get the green bubble. <laughs> and they're like, this guy's a fucking serial killer. <laughs> that's so funny. Like, this guy's either a scam artist or a serial killer. <laughs> that's so funny. Oh, my God. So you went back to the iPhone. Yeah. So it was like just <laughs> from my two. New York friends were like, this guy got a cat. He quit drinking. He got a, <laughs> he, 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 he's asking us to download WhatsApp to talk to him. <laughs> oh, um, my God. That's so funny. Like he's not eating meat anymore. <laughs> yeah. Like, what the fuck? You know. WhatsApp. Oh, boy. Yeah. And it was like, but I think just within a few months of just doing that, it was, I realized it was like the best thing I ever did. Mm-hmm. I think for one, immediately I got my weekends back. Right. It's crazy to just wake up on a Sunday morning and just know like you have a Sunday to do it's things. It's a Sunday, yeah, and yeah. it's like nice out, and there are other people like doing things. Yeah, yeah, it that also, was a crazy thing for me to realize too. It, it made my anxiety a lot better. Like it just calmed it down a lot. You know, mm-hmm. um, my health improved a lot. Like my skin, everything. Mm-hmm. But all in all, like I just. There were things I could let go about my identity, you know, right. that that feeling of victimization and realize that, like, you know, there's no such thing as a as a pure victim or an a pure abuser. I think everyone embodies both yeah. in varying amounts. And I, and I just realized it just made me re- more accountable to my friends where I had to also own up to the ways in which I was blind to, you know, some of the gifts I had and some of the privilege and things and. And I think like it also changed like the way I look at things too. I think growing up in public is hard. And I think for me, like growing up without validation and suddenly being like, oh, this guy's a good graphic designer. It sounds so lame talking about it, but it's like, oh, this guy was, and it, this was like the thing I held on to. Yeah. And like I had that reputation within the design field of like making work that was like challenging or disruptive, but I didn't want that to be my identity. Like I don't want to keep breaking things. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think also just hitting 32, like I didn't try to be so cool anymore Uh because I knew that I wasn't the youngest person in the room. I wasn't the, like 
the most like cutting edge ideas or whatever weren't going to come from me necessarily. Mm. Um, yeah. But that was, wow. a, that was cool because it meant I could live the life I wanted. I was, yeah, to. I was just going to say that's like a depressing thought, but also freeing in a way because you don't have that responsibility yeah. or the like pressure. Like I need to come up with a. I don't have to be cool. Relies on me. Yeah. You don't have to be cool. Yeah. I don't have to, <laughs> like, I don't have to be at this like dive bar, you know, doing lines with this industry person mm-hmm. and like scheming, you know? Like, yeah. I can be lame. I can be. It was like permission to be washed up in some ways. Washed up. And like, and just really challenging what that even means. And yeah, it's sort of just like, I'm using such like negative connotations, but I just mean it wholeheartedly. No, I, I know. I, I, I get it. I think it was like, it honestly feels in a lot of ways, like my life started like two years ago. Mm-hmm. It feels, this feels a lot closer to the personality I had in college where you know, I was optimistic and sincere and hopeful. And it was like, I wanted to get rid of that personhood, that person I saw in myself so much, but now I want everything to try to reclaim who that person was. Your Your return to you. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Wow. It's really crazy. It's wild how like, to like find your identity, you kept trying to like find new things like to, to latch on to. And like now it's like stripping to to get back to your identity, you have to strip those things away. Yeah. So like really, wow. Yeah. I mean, I think there's that. I think like Twitter and Instagram and things, they also robbed me of compassion for people. I think like, I don't want to say like I'm anti-cancel culture and stuff like that. I think that stuff's like, I think it's good that these conversations are happening. Mm-hmm. But I think what happens sometimes is that you start viewing people as disposable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot it, of it, sometimes there's there's a relationship to punishment that I think should be questioned sometimes. I spent most of my 20s seeking punishment for other people. Right. Um, for the people that I felt wronged me. Yeah. For the people that I felt didn't give me enough what yeah. I felt like I deserved. Um, I was seeking to punish myself. You know, a lot of that was fueled by substances. And I think ultimately, like, I, in some ways I quit alcohol, I quit smoking, I quit, like, drugs. But I think in another way to look at it for me was, like, I changed my relationship to to shame and, and punishment. Wow. You know, I, I changed my relationship to, to retribution and, uh-huh. and, and revenge against people right i think that's ultimately something that was more kind of good that's huge yeah that's like bigger than than quitting all those things those lifestyle changes yeah i think six months into i think six months into sobriety i realized i didn't need to be in portland anymore Uh like i a lot of it was i was afraid to go back to new york right even though that's the only place where i truly felt at home Mm -hmm. and i think after that i was just like hey i could do this a different way Wow. Like, I thought it was going to be PTSD, like going back to New York and going back and revisiting triggering things and stuff. Yeah. But it was just like, I think at that point I was like, I'm pretty sure of myself and who I am uh-huh. and my motivations. And I think that made it okay. And so I think I was also getting tired of the corporate life. And so like one day in August, like CoStar told me to take that risk that you've been always been taking. Yes. And then an hour later, I told my boss I quit. Um, <laughs> Thank you, co-star. Yeah. And a month later, I was in New York looking for an apartment. 
and it was. And you and this was the the new old new you. Yeah, yeah. And then a few months later, after I moved back, the pandemic hit. Right. Welcome back. Yeah. <laughs> and it's been as like somebody that is still sober. I think it was also really heartbreaking to see how certain people that you love reacted to the pandemic. Absolutely. And they started making certain decisions Absolutely. you made like yeah. a few years ago. I saw, I've, yeah, it's and been I, present. In the, and I can't people. blame them. Yeah. There's nothing I could say that would make them feel better. I There's know. nothing that I could say that would be compassionate enough. You mm-hmm. know, I, I could tell them don't do it, but it's like, I've been there before. Yeah. It's not, it doesn't you work. Know? It's yeah. like, I think people who never dealt with addiction and things like that, they have such a, even people who don't and they realize it's a social problem or, you know, they intellectually might understand it's more of an illness than a decision. Mm-hmm. But you know the way they talk about it. You know, I think when you talk yeah. about it, like, oh, so-and-so has gone off the deep end. Yeah. So-and-so is like this and that. Like, yeah, it's, it's really separating them from like being a human like yeah. being. Like separating that person from you, a normal person. Yeah, you know? and, and I recognize that maybe I myself was a part of like, some of that gossip too, like uh-huh. participating in it, but also being a part of it. Like yeah. I, my body and my appearance has visibly changed, you know, like in a very big amount in my mid twenties, I'm sure like it's been of no. And I definitely know because like once I started doing better, everyone, like some of the things people were saying to me flattering, but they were like, Oh my God. Right. Like the way they said it, like their tone of voice. Like, yeah. Oh dude. People have no tact. Like, dude, you were so rough before. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, like, yeah, Thank no, you. people have said things like that to me, too. Thank you. And it's, it's <laughs> like, I know, I was in a bad place. You know, it's like, yeah. I, there's part of me where it's like, I wish you told me maybe, if you were my friend, I wish you told me these things before, too. But I also knew that I probably would have not, yeah. probably would have not been pretty for them if they told me. And so, what, do you, what can you do? Mm-hmm. But you just realize, like, how easy it is to slip into that mindset when you think you need something, you know? Right. When you think you need something to perform, and it's like, you start falling into traps. Like I think for cigarettes, like you think like, oh, this calms me down. But then what you don't realize sometimes is that you're not calm because you're going through tobacco withdrawal, you know? And so it's like, oh, I need right. a cigarette because I need to chill out. And it's like, no, you, you're not chilling out because your body's craving a cigarette. Yeah. It's like the other way around. Mm-hmm. I think for me, I'm lucky where it's like once... I keep making rationalizations why I need something. But once I get cornered, I'll... I'll do the right thing for myself. I think other people don't have that ability and it's not their fault. You know, other people, it's truly like a bodily dependency. Mm-hmm. And um, I think like just people just do what they can to get by. And I think that's the one thing that just made me realize like, you know, a lot of this is like, there's so much of a thing tied to self-medication, compassion. Compassion like, and empathy, empathy are huge yeah. things you confront once you let go of all the thing like your trauma and yeah. it's it's a lot easier to to be sympathetic or compassionate once yeah. you've like gone through all of the hard stuff and it i mean being compassionate or empathetic is not easy either like because we're so used to this this person is bad this person is good yeah. this is the how you're supposed to behave like you're going to heaven you're going to hell yeah and it really is everyone is just a person yeah i think it's just like and they're they might be like a shitty person because of a thing that made them that way that they they haven't confronted yet you know there's still like a chance for that person to 
get there and acknowledge yeah. it and, you know, be more empathetic. It, it's, and, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm glad it happened to me early. I shouldn't take that for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, even though sometimes I'm just like, wow, I spent a decade. I feel like sometimes I'll have days where I feel like I wasted a decade of my life in many ways. But then I feel like at the same time, that's such an incredibly shitty way to look at it. And it's like, I'm actually just really lucky. Yeah. And it led you here. That I made decisions where I'm still alive, where it could have just gone the other way around. Absolutely. Like you realize how everybody is just a few decisions away from having their life changed for the worse. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you realize how fragile that is. And the people that think of themselves as superior for not being in a certain situation, I don't think they truly realize how close they are to that than they think they are, you know? Wow, and I think yeah. the pandemic has really shown that. Like you've seen like investment bankers or people that are have very successful careers and families just suddenly, you know. Go it, off the deep end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you really see that and it, it happens and. I was worried about that too, but I think thankfully, like there was just no alcohol in my house. And thankfully I'm still a hypochondriac where (laughs) the first three weeks of the pandemic, I stayed in bed thinking I'm going to die. It's going to get in here through the air vents. It's going to get in here through the plumbing system. (laughs) Oh my God. I'm sorry Um, that you had to go through that. That I didn't step out of the house for two whole months. Yeah. That sounds really like horrible. I'm sorry. No, it's kind of crazy. Cause like I did like, I thought I was being super smart. Yeah. Like I did one of those things where it's like, I'm being so fucking clever where mm-hmm. like, you know, you know, when you, when you grow up, like my family's from Taiwan. So when I grow up, it's like you had SARS and stuff in the back of your head. Mm-hmm. And so I locked down earlier before everyone did. Mm-hmm. And I knew that there was going to be like a food logistics kind of right. shortage. So oh I thought God, I can't even, yeah. So I <laughs> thought I'd be super smart by pretending to be a restaurant and going to a restaurant distribution center to get canned food. Oh my God. So I was just in my head like, yeah, this is Eric. I run the Eric Hu Restaurant Group. Um, this is Restaurant Depot. You know, I'm going to uh-huh. order a shit ton of canned food and I'm super smart. Yeah. And then you're like, yeah, $2 for a can of peaches? Sure, fine. <laughs> what you don't realize is that restaurants deal in wholesale. Yeah. So that $2 can is, you might pay $2 for a can at the bodega, but that $2 means a whole different can when you're talking about the restaurant. So, I mean, 3,000 pounds of food suddenly showed up on my doorstep. Oh, my God. And I couldn't do anything with it because I think for us, those cans were like a gallon each where it's like oh to God. get through a gallon of canned peaches. <laughs> like, you know, like, so I ended up donating it all. But it was just, I basically just. That's funny. Uh, you know, yeah. I found, I found <laughs> a CSA. funny. I found a CSA, but like to get like a, a farm to deliver vegetables and stuff. But I didn't step out for two months. Right. And so thankfully, like. You know, things kind of kept me <clears throat> in that state of sobriety. Like, yeah, that's helpful to like not go anywhere, to be too frightened to leave. Yeah, do anything. <clears throat> and I think also after a while, like that canned food thing is very funny. Yeah, <laughs> I think with drinking, I don't really see a desire in drinking again. I don't really miss it. Mm-hmm. I do miss smoking a cigarette the most. I have to say, out of all of it, yeah, like. If they find if the they, way you talk about smoking, I can tell that was the hardest one for you to yeah, let go of. If they invent healthy cigarettes in the future, Dude, like I, I'm, you know what, like fuck it. I know, like, you know, I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I miss the social aspect. I miss like the I miss feel how it looks, the feel of it. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I love smoking too. Yeah. So it's so that was <laughs> definitely like the hardest one. But you also realize like when. Like for people that quit smoking cigarettes, when you get your sense of smell back, it's insane. Yeah. Oh my God. And then when you can like <clears throat> smell like 
smoke on somebody else. Yeah. You're like, this is what I used to smell like? Like, oh my god! Like I, this is offensive. Yeah, like going back to China Chalet. Like after right, you right. quit smoking, you're like, holy fuck! I know. You know, like yeah. No, I went to China Chalet sober a few times actually, yeah. but it's wild. Yeah, <laughs> it's really something because all the, yeah, the like, smells. It's just on everything after that. Yeah, yeah, for no, sure. It's crazy and like yeah, I went back to I went back to Taiwan again like last like a month before the pandemic, mm-hmm. like right after I was sober too. And like, yeah, culture was just wild, you know, like drinking club sodas at the bar and stuff like that. It was, you know, it's fine. It's like, fine. Like life moves on. Mm-hmm. And I kind of just like replaced those interests with other things too. Like I found the beauty of staying home. Like, yeah. I actually like being alone now. I actually like being in my own thoughts. Mm-hmm, me too. Um, yeah, I found that. Same it's thing really happened to me. It was really queer. It was like a few months before I moved back to New York. I was like walking down the street in Portland, and I just realized like I hear the birds chirping, mm-hmm. and like I could feel like the wind on my face. And I realized like there's so many years of my life where I wasn't aware of my immediate surroundings because it was just in my head. Yeah. Or I was like drunk, and like I realized I mi- I hadn't heard like birds chirping in a long time and things like that, and. That was like a really beautiful moment for me, like just like being present. Yeah. Um, no, that is beautiful. And now you know that you have the rest of your life to do yeah. that. Stop and, and smell the roses. I mean, the thing about sobriety is like, it seems like one of those things you got to be vigilant for. Like, yeah. Things kind of slip into like, you know, also like it's something I have to keep in mind too, because I'm on medication for ADHD. Me too. And so, you know, there's dependency conversations around that stuff yeah. too. And so that's, and you could sort of, I could sort of catch myself where it's like, no, I need this to work. But then it's like, when you think you need something. Yeah. I, you know, that's something that I'm it's dealing a, with. It's a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's something that I continually have to do with. And I and try to be extra cautious with myself with that too, knowing that like, Hey, I probably have an addictive personality. Yeah. This is probably, there's probably a biological component, you know, I think, I think the, like ADHD, what it affects a lot is your reward centers. And like dopamine and stuff like that too. And that's all interconnected, you know, like that instant gratification I seek and stuff. Like, oh, yeah. A lot of that stuff I guess is, that just is an ADHD thing tied to, you know, and so it's something I have to just be careful of. Right. I mean, thankfully, I think I'm in a pretty good place. Like, um, you know, if, if I feel like the drug isn't as effective as before, I take a break from it rather than increase. Yeah. My instead dose. of that's like, so smart. You know, it's like yeah. I, I do things where it's like, like knowing when to take a break, but also knowing not to put yourself through a withdrawal phase and like doing things carefully. A lot of that stuff's been really helpful. And like, you know, I, I see a therapist that also deals with like addiction issues and trauma a lot too. And thankfully it's not a conversation. I have, addiction isn't really a conversation I have to have with her mm-hmm. these days, but it's good to know that like there's support. someone who understands yeah. and support. Yeah. yeah. I think what's also great is that a lot of my friends have also gone sober since too. Yeah, I, it's it's trending right now. Yeah, I think sometimes it's like an age thing. Yeah, that's. I mean, I guess it's technically thing. like Cali sober because yeah. like people still smoke weed and stuff. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, I I partake in that here sometimes too. But I think like yeah, it's a very different. No, it's totally it's a different mindset. Yeah. Different. I mean, I I don't smoke. I yeah. I no, but would Adderall sober be? girl boss sober yeah <laughs> i think like yeah i mean yeah girl 
that girl boss good. over. Girl sober, boss over sounds good. I think that's you where know, we're at. It's crazy getting to know your friends sober too. Oh yeah, it's nice, right? Yeah. It's like meeting a new person. Yeah, it's like, really fun. Like it, like it. it it's well, exciting. A lot again. of friendships feel like we're starting over because yeah, we both, we both became sober around the same time, and I only knew them through drinking. Yeah, and, no, and it's crazy. It's stuff. so wild. Yeah, like every relationship starts anew. Like yeah. you really meet people, and it, you know, you become closer because you're listening to each other. Yeah, it's cool. It's funny right now because, um, you know, my girlfriend. I met her when I moved back to New York, and so she only knows this part about me uh-huh. and stuff. And she's not sober or anything, and so she she has her parties and stuff. And she she's really sweet, and she's like really considerate of me. Um, but then like, she, it's funny when she can meet my old friends and she corroborate. Like sometimes I'll like drop a hint, like yeah, like I know what that is. Like, yeah, uh, like you know I've been there. Uh huh. I've been around the block, and some of my friends are like, yeah, like you should have. Like Eric was a different person back then. <laughs> And she's like super curious, you know, I think right. there's more of a curiosity, but I think sometimes it's like, you only see the out, you only see things like outwardly in people. Like, yeah. Like right now. Yeah. Like for me, I was like, I was a guy that was talkative and like really good at dancing at bars. <laughs> and now like, I'm probably at a, if I'm at a bar with friends now, I'm probably, I probably seem like I have a stick up my ass comparatively. Yeah, it's really hard to dance sober. Um, you know, and things like that. But like, this is one of those things where boring is a gift you know Mm -hmm. absolutely they see a more boring version of me in some ways but in my head like there's more parity between the person inside my head and the person outward yeah whereas before there was a big disparity right right boring truly is a gift yeah oh i love that maybe we'll title that episode then yeah (laughs) wow eric thank you like i didn't think you would Go so far into it. Sorry, I didn't. No, know, I'm, no, I'm, I'm really t- happy. I'm, kind of a I'm. Yeah, you're a good talker. You're a good oh, talker. Thank you. <laughs> that ugh, man, I'm really happy you're back in New York. Yeah, I am too. The summer's gonna be fun. Yeah, it's this, gonna be awesome. I'm kind of scared. Um, yeah, I'm a little scared too. It's, it's like everyone seems extremely horny. Right? Yeah, and like deprived of things right now. Uh huh. But. I think New York deserves it. I think so too. We got hit the hardest. Like, yeah, on Twitter sometimes. It's been true hell. People are complaining <laughs> how easy it is for a New Yorker relatively to the rest of the world to get vaccinated, but it's just like, yo, we fucking deserve it. Yeah, it, it's been really, really quite bad. Yeah, like pe- seeing people dying and then all that businesses one period closing. It was just like ambulances all night. Mm-hmm. Like that was yeah. rough. Like it's been a year. Yeah, it's been a long. It yeah. also just made me so happy I moved back to New York. Like, yeah, right. Even even like when it was super scary mm-hmm. and stuff. Like in your head, it's like here we're like, aren't you gonna flee? And it's like, yeah, no. no, you are a true New Yorker. No, it was just like, no, this is good. Like seeing people like that's important act with compassion and kindness. It's a, yeah, no, absolutely. Like you have to like confront, like face the shitty stuff to like. There, I maybe it's a reward system thing yeah, still, but a, like. There's a difference between nice and kind. Yeah. Like, people say the West Coast is nicer. Like, (laughs) Portland Mm -hmm. and L.A. are chill, but they're so fucking mean. Like, they're so fucking heartless. Yeah. Like, I remember, like, leaving my cell phone in a taxi cab at, like, PDX Airport. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, hey, can I please borrow your phone? Yeah. Can I please call my phone? It's in a cab. Yeah. And I have a flight to catch. Nobody gave it to me. That's 
And you know in JFK, somebody Oh my gosh, yeah, somebody would. Like, that's the thing. Like, New York isn't nice, (laughs) but it's kind. Yeah, And like, there's so much more empathy in New York. Because we're around people all the time. It was so fake nice that like, actually, the cab driver came back and gave me my phone. And everybody around me clapped, including everybody that like, pretended to, I wasn't there and like, That makes me me. want to throw off. I hate that. That was definitely like, just like, yo, I I miss New York in this (laughs) case. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad you're back. Yeah. It was like, it was just so happy. And just seeing like other cities not to talk shit, but just like <laughs> people were definitely much more self-interested there. Like be, like complying with mask and stuff, masking and everything. It was like New Yorkers just like had it down yeah. compared to other cities. It's just we like, like cared yeah. about people because we were seeing people we love die. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like in our faces, you know, but Eric, I don't, I've, I've, could listen to you talk all day. Yeah. But we're, you know, coming to a close. Definitely. I don't I don't and want I, to. And you have a call. Uh, oh, yeah. Like 10 minutes ago. Okay. But thank you so much. And yeah. this has been a really good listening experience. I'm so And glad. learning opportunity and just fascinating. Thank you for giving me the chance to speak this. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited for everyone else to hear. Yeah, I just, I just celebrated my two years of sobriety and congratulations you know, it's, it's cool it's like it gets one day easier yeah one day at a time okay well i'm gonna okay listeners see you later yeah take <laughs> care if you enjoyed this episode please consider subscribing to the al anonymous patreon at patreon.com slash al And if you don't feel like paying for my otherwise free podcast, perhaps you could subscribe, rate, and review Al Anonymous on iTunes and all the other places that you get your podcast streaming. And finally, if you are technologically impaired, maybe you can just tell all of your friends how much you love this podcast, Al Anonymous, and me, Al. Thank you, and I love you all.